0: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Ben Valsler. Hello. This week we are scaling the heights to explore the science of mountains. We'll be finding out what being at high altitude does to the human body and how the processes that make mountains could be leading to global climate change. Plus, we joined the intrepid Laura Soul on an audio diary of her trek up to Everest Base Camp. Now, this is amazing stuff. She's a hero. She's giving us a first-hand account of how it feels to be breathing the thin air at 5,000 metres and monitoring the physiological changes that happen as you climb. Ben.
2: Thanks, Kat. We'll also hear about the desktop evolution experiment that saw sudden jumps in mutation rate and find out how looming sounds like a car approaching... Or footsteps in a dark alley could enhance your eyesight even before you realize that you can hear the sound. We'll be exploring how stresses and strains can help shape the developing embryo and we'll hear how scientists have discovered how we can taste fizz. Plus, Diana O'Carroll will join us with our question of the week. We'll be finding out if spiders are brilliant architects or mathematical geniuses in order to build the perfect web.
1: So, arachnophobes beware. That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientist Podcast. Powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
1: And now it's time for the news, and we're going to talk now about evolution. And evolution on a grand scale, now this is the sort of evolution that produced humans from our monkey-like ancestors, that takes millions of years and it's kind of difficult to recreate in a lab. But researchers at Michigan State University have been running an evolutionary experiment over 21 years that is showing natural selection at work. Now the scientists, who are read by, uh, led by Professor Richard Linsky have bred and analysed a staggering 40,000 generations of bacteria and they're publishing their findings today in the journal Nature.
2: This is really impressive stuff. We have had Richard Lenski on the show before, actually. When did he first start doing this?
1: Well, he first started growing these E. coli bacteria back in 1988. These are kind of bugs you find in your stomach, and you can grow them in flasks in the lab. They reproduce roughly every 20 minutes, so they're quite good for studying. Now, he figured that if a bacterial cell picks up a genetic mutation that gives it an advantage, then its progeny should start to take over the flask. Now, this is Darwin's theory of natural selection in action. And although this kind of experiment's been done before, this is the longest running and the most detailed study of its kind.
2: So, once they've actually grown them in the flask, how did they study the bacteria?
1: Well, what they've been doing over the past two decades (laughs) is periodically freezing samples of bugs from the culture... But it's only really now we've actually got the genome sequencing technology that means we can study them really in minute genetic detail. So now we've got the technology to do justice to this experiment.
2: So now that we have the technology, what are we finding?
1: Well... When you look at the halfway marks at 20,000 generations, the scientists discovered that there were 45 mutations in the surviving cells. Now, as you might expect, these mutations give an advantage to the bacteria. Um, And also the experiment revealed interesting relationships between the speed at which organisms adapt and the rate of mutation in their genomes. Now, Lenski himself actually says the genome was evolving at a surprisingly constant rate but the adaptation of the bacteria slowed down. But then suddenly the mutation rate jumped up and you've got this new sort of dynamic relationship. Now, they found that a DNA mutation involved uh, in DNA metabolism happened around sort of 26,000 generations. And this mutation in... The enzyme that helps to make DNA actually means that the chances of mutations happening elsewhere in the genome really goes up a lot. So by generation 40,000, there were 653 advantageous mutations compared with the 45 they found at halfway through the experiment.
2: So it's not just creeping up and we get the odd mutation every now and then It keeps going fairly constantly. Some of these mutations themselves seem to cause this big jump and so we get lots more mutations, which of course should mean quicker evolution.
1: Exactly and it's really interesting uh, because this research sheds light on many other situations where we get these kind of big jumps in evolution. For example in cancers you suddenly pick up a mutation that affects the DNA and You know, then the cancer starts to pick up a lot more mutations that make it grow and spread. Or in the case of of microbial infections, as they start to, to take over. And it also could be useful for industrial scientists who are growing bugs that produce enzymes and drugs. And, you know, maybe it could help the performance of their bacteria.
2: Fantastic. It should be very interesting to see as well how bacteria develop resistance. If they have a mutation that causes them to change very quickly, then they'll adapt very quickly to whatever we throw at them.
1: Absolutely.
2: Now, some sounds, such as a speeding car that sneaks up on you or footsteps in a dark alley, actually seem to improve our eyesight even before we're aware that we can hear them. And this is according to research published in the journal Current Biology. Now this gives us cause to rethink the idea that hearing and vision are handled separately in the brain at the input stage.
1: So go on then, how do you figure this one out?
2: <laughs> well, this was Gregor Tut at the University of Glasgow and his colleagues at uh, Glasgow and in fact all over the world. They performed a series of experiments to look at the excitability of a part of the brain called the low-level visual cortex, and they wanted to see if it was altered by hearing different sounds, in particular looming sounds. So to do this, they used a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation
1: is this where you like you just kind of zap someone's brain it's
2: exactly zapping somebody somebody's brain it uses rapidly changing magnetic fields to induce small currents in the neurons in your brain and this stimulation in that area leads to the perception of flashes of light a bit like those that you see when you rub your eyes a little Oh,
1: when you, of yeah you put your flashes. fingers right in your eyes yeah. uh,
2: that's called phosphine induction Now, in the presence of looming sounds, these structured sounds that sound like they're getting closer to you. Like footsteps. Like footsteps, exactly. Compared to control sounds that stayed the same volume or got quieter, the perception of phosphenes was greatly and selectively enhanced. So this shows that these sounds do indeed alter the excitability of that bit of your brain that's responsible for your vision. They did see an increase in excitability when listening to the constant volume sounds, but lo- the looming sounds actually doubled the baseline phosphine perception. So this increase actually happened about 35 milliseconds before volunteers could hear the sound at all.
1: So this is something that's really at sort of the subconscious reflex type level and is this something that we've evolved to adapt so you might hear footsteps and think oh crikey um, and be aware of something even before you've realised.
2: I think that's almost certainly what happened. They say it's a pre-perceptive change in your brain so before you perceive the sound your brain has already altered its excitability to make up for it. Um, They also followed an experiment to, uh, to see if it was just the increasing intensity that got this reaction so the fact that the sound was getting louder rather than it feeling like it was coming closer and... If you have a very structured sound like footsteps or like...
3: A a,
4: car. car, Yes,
2: something that's that's quite structured, relatively narrow band, then it can sound like it's getting closer. But if you have something like white noise, just a, a broad hiss, then that will just sound like it's getting louder and won't feel like it's getting closer. So when they did the same test with these sounds, they found that the visual cortex was just as excitable as when you were listening to constant volume noises, but not as excitable as when listening to these looming noises. So it's definitely to do with the fact that it feels like it's coming closer.
1: Something creeping up on you. Something
2: creeping up on you, exactly. Now this shows that visual perception can be boosted by other senses in, as I said, a pre-perceptive way, so before we realise what we're hearing. And this shows us that not only may this be an evolved capacity to listen out for that saber-toothed tiger creeping up on us when we're in our cave, but it may also... Give us cause to rethink the structure of the brain itself.
1: Oh, there you go. And maybe make men look out for you when they hear your high heels coming. <laughs> anyway, uh, from uh, the brain to the very start of life. And uh, talk about embryonic stem cells. Now, these have been hot news in science for quite a while. These are the first cells that form in the developing embryo just a couple of days after fertilisation. And they're amazing little cells because they have the potential to become any type of cell in the body. And because of this property, scientists are trying to turn them into all sorts of different types of cells in order to repair diseased or worn out tissues. Now, researchers grow embryonic stem cells or ES cells in the lab and then they treat them with various chemicals or they do manipulations on their genes to try and get the cells to adopt different fates. But now, scientists in Illinois have made an unexpected discovery, and that's that ES cells might be coaxed into certain fates by physical stresses and strains. The embryo.
2: So, actually pushing on the cells seems to change what they do. Yeah,
1: it's fascinating stuff. And this is research that's just been published in the journal Nature Materials from Ning Wang and colleagues who were looking at the effect of forces on different types of cells. Now, to do this, they attach a single tiny magnetic bead, this is like a few nanometers, uh, to the surface of a living mouse ES cell and then they put the cells into a tiny oscillating magnetic field and that makes the bead wiggle up and down and this makes the cells start to wiggle up and down and this mimics the natural forces that are within a cell such as the movement of little motor proteins that are churning stuff around inside the cells. Now this setup meant they could actually measure the mechanical force being applied to the cell and measure how soft the cells are.
2: And when they did what did they find?
1: Well the scientists found out that the ear cells were much softer and more sensitive to the movements than more advanced cells that had started to go down different fate routes. Now, for example, uh, muscle cells are much, much stiffer than ES cells. And the scientists also went to look at at the effect of physical forces on the activity of different genes in the cells. And they found that applying movement to ES cells, this wiggling, caused them to switch off the activity of certain genes. And some of those genes control what type of cell the ES cell is going to become.
2: So... Now, I might be taking this a step too far, but does this mean that we can change what an embryonic stem cell is going to become just by wiggling it about?
1: Possibly. That seems to be what it says. And now at the moment, this research has just been done using mouse ES cells, and we don't know if human ES cells will respond in the same way. But it could provide a useful way of persuading cells to adopt certain fates. So, for example, if doctors are trying to replace damaged or worn-out cells, and if it actually works in living embryos, maybe you can alter the fates of specific cells at an early stage. For example, if there are developmental defects going on without affecting neighbouring cells.
2: Fantastic. Well, thinking of different types of cell, um, you know there are various different taste cells on your tongue that mean you can taste different things.
1: Sour, sweet, salt, umami.
2: Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, um, scientists have now discovered exactly what's going on when you taste a fizzy drink. It's both a physical and a chemical experience. Not only do you have the bubbles forming on your tongue, but also there's a chemical thing going on with one specific group of those taste receptors. Now, reporting of this week's science, Jay Amram, Chakasendra, and colleagues from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at the University of California, San Diego, and colleagues from various other places in the States, they show that the cells on our tongues that sense sour flavours are also responsible for tasting this carbonisation. And they've identified the gene that's probably responsible.
1: So go on then. How does it work?
2: Well, as I said, it's the sour sour cells that do it. We know that we have cells that detect bitter, sweet, salty, sour, and umami, Umami. as you said, which is the the flavour of... Uh, monosodium glutamate Parmesan cheese <laughs> yeah, Parmesan cheese lots of it and tomatoes <laughs> um, The taste system is also responsive to CO2 through a number of different pathways so there's olfaction, we can smell it, the chemoreception that detects CO2 in our lungs is also partly responsible. But by genetically deactivating specific sets of these taste receptor cells in mice, they could show that mice lacking the cells for sourness were completely unable to detect CO2. Now these cells express an ion channel called PKD2L1. So they looked in these cells for candidate genes that were only really found in cells expressing that ion channel. Once they'd found a gene called CAR4, they switched it off and noticed that even though animals with sour receptor cells could still taste sour things, if this gene was switched off, they couldn't taste CO2. Now, this gene codes for something called carbonic anhydrase, which catalyzes a reaction that turns carbon dioxide and water into bicarbonate and free protons. We know that bicarbonate doesn't react with taste receptors, so it must be these free protons that mean we can taste CO2. But then there's a question of why we can taste carbon dioxide at all and the authors suggest that it might just be a coincidence and the enzyme is really there to maintain the correct pH balance in our taste buds. But there is some evidence of specific CO2 taste detection in insects so this may suggest that it has evolved in us as a means of detecting food that's fermenting or going off.
1: Mm, that kind of fizzy hummus thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I-, I love the idea as well of giving little mice like fizzy drinks. Like, Does that taste fizzy to you? Um, How do you do it? Anyway, um, also this week, researchers at Cambridge University have developed a new insect repellent coating, which could help to reduce the threat of cockroaches. Now, for many of us, insects are just kind of a bit of a pest. They get in your picnic. But insect infestations are responsible for billions of pounds worth of damage across the globe every year. Now, we're joined by Jan henning Dirks from Cambridge University. So... Tell me a bit about what the problem is with insects and then how you've, uh, how you've tried to counteract this. Well,
5: yeah, well, the problem with insects is, is that they amazingly well stick to all kinds of surfaces. If you look around, you see them basically clinging to the mirror, clinging to the window, holding on to everything and holding on very, very tight. And so for us, this is a more scientific problem of to understand how this actually works. So at the Insect Biomechanics Work Group here in Cambridge, we were trying to figure out what makes insects so incredibly good in sticking to different kinds of surfaces. And whilst we were exploring the, this, we found a surface that can help you prevent your house and your belongings and probably even your lab from crawling insects.
1: So how does this surface work? Because we have you know, non-slip surfaces, things like PTFE, that we cover non-stick pans with. But Why is, is your surface different? How does it work?
5: Well, our, our surface is completely different to all other insect repellents that you know. Because if you look around you, all insects that you can see, they have, a, they have sweaty feet feet, actually. So they, have, <laughs> nice. have, they do, yes. <laughs> and um, you can even write your PhD about it. And so this, sweaty, this foot sweat that they have, um, that helps them to stick to surfaces. And our technology does something very new. It, it basically make, it tricks the insect's feet. It makes them lubricate their own feet. Other repellents that you see, they work like they are sticky themselves. So, you know, these, these fly tapes that capture flies or some people who keep insects at home, they know that they have these uh, surfaces that erode and, and make the feet dirty. But our technology is like a selective sponge. It removes something from the, from the insect's adhesive fluid And what's left over makes the insect's feet slip.
1: So instead of having sort of a a sticky glue that they're sticking out the wall with, suddenly they're going, woo and sliding off.
5: It's very similar. So so they don't really have a sticky uh, substance at first. It's more like ketchup or custard. It's it's One part of it is oil and the other part is water. And together it works very similar to ketchup. But if we remove the water, that's what our surface does, then what's left over is the oil and that... Let, makes index slip.
1: And tell me a bit more about the surface I mean what sort of things could we coat with it is it very pliable?
5: So that's that's what we're exploring right now so in theory you, you can apply these, this the surface to very very many kinds of different uh, substances so now right now we're exploring and that's why we're looking for a commercial partner to make this really available for everyone so they can coat whatever they want with it and make index slip from the barbecue or from, from where they want don't want index to be.
1: Fantastic. I'm looking forward to a non-insect, non-stick picnic hamper. That would be fantastic. That's Jan henning Dirks from Cambridge University.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists.
2: You're listening to the Naked Scientists and this week we're looking at mountains, how the processes that make them can change the climate and what they'd do to you if you attempted to climb up them. Now, the real star of today's show is Laura Soule, who recently climbed to base camp on Mount Everest with a group called Gap Adventures, a trekking group of 15, and for moral support, she took her brother.
1: Aww, a trek up Everest is not something to be taken lightly, so before she went, Laura visited Cambridge University's Andrew Murray to find out what happens to the body in a low oxygen atmosphere.
6: Oxygen is absolutely critical for almost every process in the body. Just about every tissue uses oxygen to make energy in the form of ATP, the universal energy currency of the cell. And if oxygen levels fall, the amount of ATP that can be produced and the amount of energy available to the cell is reduced. So you find it very much harder to do work, exercise work, which requires ATP because you've got less oxygen to make it.
7: The longer you stay at higher altitudes, the more you get used to it. How does the body begin adapting to that?
6: OK, so several adaptations you see, and they all occur over, over different time frames. So first of all, your heart will start beating harder. The reason for this is that it wants to deliver more blood to the muscles, the blood carrying the oxygen. So you pump more of that blood to the muscles to maintain the oxygen supply so you can do the work. The other changes you'll see is that you'll start breathing harder to get that oxygen into your blood. Over longer terms, or medium term rather, you'll start to see an increase in red blood cells in the blood, of people adapting to altitude. The red blood cell, the erythrocyte, is what carries the oxygen in the blood. So by increasing the amount of blood, you increase the oxygen-carrying capacity. Of course, this makes the blood very thick, and so it can also be slightly detrimental, and it becomes very viscous, very hard to push through the capillaries into the muscle. More long-term changes that you start to see, your breathing rate returns to normal, Um, Your red blood cell mass stays high, but the signs are that there's other changes going on. And actually, we don't know a great deal about this, what's actually happening in the muscles themselves. We think it could be more blood vessels delivering oxygen to the muscle, or it could be changes within the tissue itself in the way that the muscle metabolism uses oxygen to make energy. It could become more efficient, or it could use other metabolic pathways that are not dependent on oxygen.
7: Is there any height at which the human body cannot adapt to high altitude?
6: Absolutely. As part of our expedition in 2007, my colleagues and I took blood samples from very high on the mountain. We took samples as high as 8,400 metres, and interestingly enough, we found that even up to about 7,000 metres, the blood oxygen content was maintained, by which I mean you had more red blood cells. Each of them was carrying less oxygen, but the fact that there was more of them meant that the total amount of oxygen in your blood was the same. But above 7,000 metres, and certainly above 8,000 metres, this began to fall. This area is known as the death zone by climbers, and you really don't want to spend too much time there for obvious reasons, as its name would suggest. But above around 7,000 metres, the body can no longer adapt, and the amount of time you can spend there is limited.
7: One thing that you can test to see how your body is adapting is the alkalinity of your urine. Why does that change?
6: Okay, so one of the initial changes is that you start breathing very hard, and this is triggered by a low oxygen level in your blood. Your chemoreceptors, which monitor oxygen and pH sense that oxygen levels are falling, and you start breathing hard. Now, one of the problems with breathing hard, as well as bringing in more oxygen, is that you breathe off carbon dioxide. So you decrease the amount of carbon dioxide in your blood. And carbon dioxide is acidic. If your blood then becomes very alkaline, this triggers other chemoreceptors to say, whoa, stop breathing, you're breathing far too hard. You get very sporadic breathing patterns. And this particularly happens when you're asleep and you haven't got conscious control of your breathing. So this is known as chain-stokes breathing. So you might be breathing very hard one minute and then suddenly you'll stop breathing and you'll wake yourself up thinking that you're drowning in your sleeping bag and try to rip it off you. It can be very scary, but it's even more scary for your tent mate who thinks that you're having a heart attack and and, uh, about to die in the middle of the night. So one way the body adapts to this is to reduce the alkalinity of your blood by excreting bicarbonate, which is alkaline. The kidneys do this job very effectively, put in the bicarbonate into your urine, and then your urine becomes very alkaline. Of course, the side effect of this is that you need to pee a lot. So you'd be waking up a lot in the middle of the night and getting up and going to the loo, especially your first night there.
7: A very interesting thing that changes at altitude is your sense of smell. Is there an understanding of why that occurs?
6: So, my understanding is that there's two possible causes of this, and we aren't absolutely sure which of these is the true explanation. Yes, your sense of smell is definitely decreased. And it could be because the the chemicals that are flying around in the air that are picked up by our olfactory nerves, those chemicals are more dispersed in the the thin air. The other possibility is that certain neural pathways might be downregulated and therefore the sense is impaired. These neural pathways obviously require a huge amount of energy, which requires a huge amount of oxygen. So by downregulating these pathways just a little bit, you might say if you've just enough oxygen to survive at higher altitudes.
7: There's very severe effects that can sometimes happen when people are at high altitude. Altitude sickness. Why does this happen, and and what are the signs of that?
6: So there's various degrees of altitude sickness. Um, at the lower end, there's a high altitude headache that you will get, and everybody will get this at some stage. If this isn't monitored carefully, it can develop into AMS or acute mountain sickness when you start to see a severe headache, you get nausea, vomiting, you become disorientated. We're not entirely sure why this happens, but it's probably due to a lack of oxygen really being delivered to the brain. And and these are various neural pathways, which are basically telling your body that it's, it's not in a good place at the moment. A more severe altitude sickness can be high altitude cerebral edema or high altitude pulmonary edema. So that's either water retention of the brain. Or on the lungs in the case of pulmonary edema, hay, poor, haze, and these are extremely severe. People do die of these. All climbers going above base camp, or even at the kind of base camp level, need to be monitored very carefully for any signs of hay, poor, haze, and if any appear, the only solution is descend, descend, descend. Why they occur and why they occur in some individuals and not others is not really clear. Certainly aspects like physical fitness at sea level are not good predictors of altitude sickness. And in fact, the only predictor of how well somebody will do at altitude is how well have you done on previous trips to altitude. If somebody has done well previously, they're likely to do well again. If they've done badly previously, they're likely to do badly again, which suggests there's certain genetic factors. What the genes are that regulate this, we don't know, but um, work is, again, ongoing.
1: So there you have it. If you've been to altitude, there's no way to tell how well you will respond. Uh, you've just got to go there and find out. That was Andrew Murray talking to Laura Soul about how the body responds to the low oxygen atmosphere encountered when you go up.
2: While Laura was on her high altitude adventure She decided to monitor what did happen to her body By doing a series of experiments on herself And on her brother, who wasn't always the most cheerful volunteer She measured heart rate, blood oxygen content, urine pH And her sense of smell She also recorded an audio diary for us I caught up with her once she got back into the country To find out just how her experience had been
7: It was actually a really amazing experience. I really enjoyed myself. It was hard work. It took a very long time, but it was definitely worth it.
2: So, first of all, how high is Everest Base Camp?
7: Base camp itself is at 5,300 metres, but the highest we went while we were going up there was 5,450 metres.
2: So, although it is called base camp, people shouldn't be fooled into thinking that it's at the bottom of the mountain.
7: No, it's certainly very high up, especially compared to where we live here at Cambridge, which is sea level.
2: (laughs) Well, let's have a listen to the first part of your audio diary.
7: We've now arrived in Pakding, which is at 2,652 metres. Some of the views up here have been absolutely spectacular. You can see the deep gorges and the high-rising peaks, typical of the Himalayas. Unfortunately, for a lot of the day, it's been quite cloudy and has been raining fairly solidly all day, which is a shame. But we've still been able to see a lot, and it's been an amazing experience. This morning, we flew in by a two-propeller plane into Lukla. It was a fairly terrifying experience. The runway is 60 metres higher at one end than the other, but it has to be because it's so short it has to slow the plane down by going uphill. Lukla's at 2,800 metres and Padding's at 2,652 metres, so we're arriving higher and sleeping lower, which is the recommended course that you take when you're going to high altitudes to allow you to acclimatise to the altitude more effectively. At this height, I haven't noticed that much difference. You are a bit more out of breath as you're climbing uphill. But other than that, everybody seemed fine.
2: So although you are at altitude, it doesn't sound like you're really feeling any of it. Did your experiment show any physiological changes?
7: Yes, they actually did, even though we didn't necessarily notice the change ourselves. Our oxygen blood level had dropped down to about 97% of what it normally is, and our resting heart rates had increased by maybe 10 or 20 beats per minute.
2: So there are certainly physiological effects already, but it sounds like it's not really stopping you from moving on.
7: No, not at all. I mean, it's hard work, it's a hard walk, but you take it so slowly to try and prevent altitude sickness. No, we weren't really feeling anything at that stage.
2: OK, well, let's have a listen to the next stage of your walk.
7: Today we walked from Pakding to Namche Bazaar, which is at 3,446 metres, which means an increase of 794 metres. The climb was pretty steep the whole way, and it was quite tough. What was perhaps most disconcerting was that Sherpas often happily walked past us, having no trouble at all, when they were carrying up to 80 kilograms. sometimes. We've now started to see the effects of altitude. You do get more out of breath doing things, it is harder, and you are more tired. By the end of the day, the whole group pretty much was completely exhausted. However, nobody's ill yet, everybody's feeling well and happy and is looking forward to our rest day, which allows us to acclimatise to the altitude tomorrow.
2: Now that sounds like that was an enormous change in altitude in one day, 794 metres.
7: Yes, it really was a big jump up that day. Um, It was quite hard work and you really saw it in the experiments that we were doing. My blood oxygen level had dropped down to about 90% of what it normally is, which is quite a big difference.
2: But by the sounds of it, the following morning, you really got a glimpse of what it was that you were aiming for.
7: This morning, as we left Namche Bazaar, the sun was out, and we got our first glimpse of Mount Everest. Unfortunately, it did only last for about five minutes before a cloud came across, but we could still clearly see Lhotse, the mountain next to Mount Everest, which is also higher than 8,000 metres. The morning's walk was quite flat, there weren't really very many up or down sections, and the sun was out, which made it quite pleasant. However, after lunch, the rain set in, and we had to walk up a steep hill for about two hours. A few people were starting to get headaches, me included, but nothing that an aspirin couldn't get rid of. We've now reached Tenbuche, which is the cultural and religious centre of the Kumbu region. Tenbuche is at 3,810 metres, which is an increase of 364 metres from Namche Bazaar where we were staying last night. This is a relatively small jump compared to some of the other ones that we've done. However, as you get higher, the tougher each small jump becomes. The one thing that we are all noticing is that we tire out a lot more quickly than usual, There's less oxygen up here, which makes everything a lot harder work.
2: So even though the altitude change was a lot smaller than the previous walk, it sounds like it's getting a lot harder.
7: Yes, it definitely was. We were really beginning to feel it. Um, And that afternoon in particular, when the weather set in and we were essentially walking up steps on what was almost a vertical cliff face, it was very much hard work.
2: And your experiments reflected this increased effort?
7: Yep, again, um, as Andrew Murray suggested they would, our oxygen levels were dropping right down and our heart rates were shooting up again.
2: But the tough climbs don't stop there.
7: Today we stayed in Periche again, but to try and prepare us for the rest of our journey, we had an acclimatisation day, which meant climbing up a nearby hill, which went up to 5,100 metres. Probably about halfway up, I started getting quite a bad headache. We had the option of going to about 4,900 or carrying on for the final 200 metres, and quite a few people, me included, stopped at 4,900. We've been told that a headache doesn't really matter as long as it stays at the front of your head, it's when it goes round to the back of your head that it becomes dangerous. Also, according to our guide, Sanka, it's all about your mental attitude. The more you worry, the more you stress, the more you think about things while you're walking, the more likely you are to get headaches, to feel nauseous, to get altitude sickness in general. And although I do have a very bad headache now, I have to say that having taken his advice so far, it usually does seem to work. It's certainly a lot easier to sleep.
2: So Andrew Murray was saying that sleep would be interrupted because of this strange breathing pattern. Did people start to experience that?
7: Yes, at this stage a lot of people were commenting that they were having trouble sleeping, that they kept waking up in the night and they couldn't work out why. Um, actually when you could hear the breathing patterns of people nearby you when they were sleeping you could definitely notice it. there were the short little breaths and then the large gasping breaths and then their breathing would just cut out completely which was a bit scary but it was really interesting
2: and it sounds like trying to relax and not think about it really helped
7: yeah I really found that um, just letting my worries float away and not thinking about anything really made me feel a lot better it's part of the Nepali philosophy just everybody chill out and relax
2: So with that in mind, you got your heads down, thought about nothing, and carried on walking.
7: So today we've walked up to L'Ambouche, which is at 4,800 metres. It was a very tough climb, despite the fact that we'd had the acclimatisation day the day before. I think that having pushed myself quite hard yesterday, it's left me with a bit of a headache today, especially because I've been worrying about it. The other thing is that up here, it's suddenly noticeably colder for the first time. Other people are really starting to feel the effects of altitude as well. More and more of the group are getting headaches, although no-one's had any serious problems yet, thankfully. One thing people are definitely noticing is that you have to go to the toilet much more than you usually do, and it's a lot harder to sleep.
2: So, just as predicted, you had to go to the toilet far more often. And this, Andrew Murray was saying, is to do with balancing your body's pH – Were you able to do any experiments to prove this?
7: Yes, we actually did measure the pH of our urine, um, and there was quite an interesting effect. Whereas with your oxygen level and your heart rate, there's sort of a steady increase and decrease while you're travelling. With this, it was more that the alkalinity of urine would shoot up when you made a jump in altitude, when you went up a long way, and then very quickly it would drop back down again to a normal level, and then as you went up again, it would shoot back up and then drop all the way down again.
2: Fascinating stuff. You are, in many ways, very close to reaching base camp. We will find out later in the show if you actually made it. By this point, the views must have been incredible and there must have been quite a drive to get there.
7: Yeah, it really is a spectacular place. If anyone ever gets the chance to go there, I'd I'd recommend it. I've never seen anything like it before in my life and um, I'd love to go back.
2: So we will be going back to Laura later on in the show to find out if she made it to base camp and hear a bit more about the experiments and how they showed her body reacting to the rarefied air. Laura has also very kindly sent us some pictures of her trip. You can find them all at thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts.
0: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
1: Now, you're probably aware that different continents shuffle around, some slowly colliding while others pull away. And you may also probably know that this is the process that leads to the production of mountain ranges and can lead to devastating earthquakes. But you may not have realised that this same process might have been responsible for a global shift in temperature, plunging us into an ice age. Now, to find out more, we're joined by Dennis Kent, who's over at Rutgers University in the US. So, hello, Dennis. Uh hello. Hello. How's how's things over in the US?
3: Oh, very uh, uh not too bad. Climate-wise or uh, weather-wise it's cold.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Uh now let's talk about some of these climate changes. Um tell us very briefly how the climate has changed over say the past 100 million years.
3: Well, over the last 100 million years it uh started out being very warm and uh there's a transition about 35 million years ago to uh, development of ice sheets, first in Antarctica and later, more recently, in the last few million years, the ice sheet in Greenland. and uh, every now and then during this current ice age enveloping some parts of Scandinavia, Great Britain, of course, uh, much of North America.
1: So we're actually kind of in an ice age now, technically.
3: Uh, most definitely.
1: Okay, most definitely as well as technically. And Now, um, looking back again, sort of over 100 million years ago, what, what did the world look like? Well, the, the continents weren't in the shape that we know them today.
3: Oh, look, uh, the the continents were in quite different places, and uh, even prior to 100 million years ago, they were lumped together in uh, what we call Pangaea, a giant landmass that uh, extended virtually from pole to pole. And that rifted apart starting about 180 million years ago. And at about 100 million years ago, the continents were quite well dispersed and uh, then started the process from dispersion into collision. And so over the last uh, last 50 million years, 100 to 50 million years, uh, the continents were recoalescing in part
1: so we've established that you know the continents kind of drifted apart and now they're drifting back together and crunching together but how is this related to climate change surely it's just you know continents crashing into each other how can that affect the climate
3: well the way, the mechanism uh, that we the, what we've been thinking about is uh looking at sources of co2 and assuming that the long term changes in climate are due to different levels of co2 in our atmosphere And some of the main sources of CO2 is uh, ocean-spreading ridges and uh, and then also in so-called subduction zones where the ocean floor is uh, being subsumed. uh, Our idea is that the the amount of CO2 produced in ocean ridges stays more or less constant, kind of of a background, background level. But the main variation in CO2 production is in subduction zones, and it's in those zones, it's the character of the sediment that enters into them.
1: So one of the areas you've studied is basically where India has kind of crunched into Asia. What do you think is going on there?
3: That's a critical area because for two reasons. One, it was a place where uh, several thousands of uh, oceanic crust was subducted, under, under Asia as India made its uh, migration from the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere. And importantly, the ocean crust that was being subducted was had to go under the equatorial belt, which was a locus of uh, carbonate production by uh, microorganisms like foraminifera and cocalus living in the water column, and uh, preferentially being along the equator where it's warm and there's also nutrients from upwelling waters, and they dropped down onto the ocean floor, and then we're subducted, And it's this uh, decarbonation in the high temperatures and pressures of a subduction zone that release CO2, and that then uh, caused a warm climate until that factory shut down.
1: So the idea is there's all these little sort of plankton and things on the seabed that are then getting squished up and releasing their CO2 into the atmosphere. Would that have really been enough to cause a massive global climate change, sort of the end of the last ice age.
3: Well, actually, that was what uh, was sustaining and making the climate warmer. And it was the absence of that that uh, I think contributed to a uh, shift in CO2 levels in the atmosphere to, uh, to lower values as it equilibrated with lower amounts of CO2 being injected into it. And so this was uh, the, the time at which India collided with India, our India collided with Asia, of course, is when the uh, uh, factory shut down. And that happened 50 million years ago. And it's at precisely this time that the climate, uh, world's climate started to deteriorate.
1: And so is this kind of process still happening today? Is, is there another region that we think might start releasing lots of CO2 and could again change the climate?
3: Well, eventually, but uh, right now there's uh, very little carbonate sediment that's being subducted uh, just under Central America, actually, and uh, so the, the the amount of CO2 from this source, at least, has not uh, has not really uh, not really increased, nor does it look like there's a prospect of it increasing any time in the near future.
1: And what kind of things are, are you and your group looking at at the moment? Where where do you go? Next, now you've discovered that probably this crunching of India into Asia has released CO two. What more are you doing to understand the process?
3: What led up to it is uh, occupying a little bit of our time because over the uh, Cretace- Cretaceous or this uh, period about a hundred million years ago until the essentially factory stops at fifty million years, there's some it, it, uh, that uh, the Cretaceous had climates that were arguably even warmer than the Eocene or 50 million years ago, until they crunch. So we're looking uh, more detail at how much uh, carbonate sediment uh, was subducted then. It's one of these odd coincidences, or perhaps there's some uh, other reason that the development of microorganisms that live in the upper water column that secrete calcium carbonate actually became prolific at about the time that India started moving north. So this it's this uh, kind of a unique circumstance that contributed to the very warm climates in the, from the 100 to 50 million year interval.
1: Absolutely fascinating stuff. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's Dennis Kent from Rutgers University in the US explaining how continental collisions can cause a change in the amount of CO2 uh, from the seabed released into the atmosphere. Um, and then when it stops, it leads to the ice age that we are now in.
0: Laying the facts bare. I say, The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and with me, Ben Valsler, and today we're talking about high altitudes and continental collisions. Soon we'll be joining Diana O'Carroll to find out if spiders are expert mathematicians and architects, but first we go back to Laura Soule to find out if she made it all the way up to Everest Base Camp.
7: Yes, we did. Everybody (laughs) in the group got all the way up there.
2: How did you feel when you got there?
7: Immediately when I got there, not that great, um, (laughs) because it was very difficult to get up there on that day. It was a very long walk. We'd been walking all day by the time we reached base camp, so I was exhausted. I had a splitting headache, and I just wanted to lie down on the floor, really. (laughs) But once you'd got over your initial exhaustion, you could stand there and look around you and sort of take in what you'd achieved and look at just what was around you, the view. It's, uh, It's good to sit down. I have a massive headache, and so do most people. I felt a bit sick on the way up, but I'm okay now. Some people feel very sick. The view from here is absolutely amazing. You can see the Kumbu Icefall, which is really beautiful with these huge, big jagged peaks of ice. It's been very hard work to get up here, but I'd say that it was definitely worth the climb.
2: Well, you do certainly sound exhausted, but that must be a day that will stick in your memory forever. But thinking back to the experiments you were doing on yourself, what was your heart rate and blood oxygen like that day?
7: Well, it had really dropped down then. I mean, my oxygen level was 79% of what it usually is, which is, is very low. And our heart rates were all sort of up above 100, above 110 in some cases.
2: And how long did you actually manage to stay there? How long did you stay at base camp?
7: I think we were probably there for about an hour or an hour and a half in total.
2: And it must have felt quite nice to start coming back
7: down. Yes, when we began descending, um, it was quite a relief. We're back down at Namche Bazaar now at 3,440 metres. My blood oxygen level is back up to 94%. The difference between how I felt on the way up here and how I feel now on the way down is absolutely huge because I've acclimatised to higher altitudes, so now it's easier to breathe here than it was on the way up. Everyone is just really full of energy, even though we walked in one day, what took us four days on the way up.
2: Well, thinking back to what Andrew Murray was saying earlier and the experiments that you've done, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the sense of smell. So what happened?
7: So yes, I definitely noticed that my sense of smell wasn't as good, particularly because I couldn't smell myself or any of my trekking companions, nor could I smell the many yaks that were there. (laughs) How do you go about
2: measuring your sense of smell? Surely it can't be stand a certain distance from a yak.
7: Um, No, unfortunately. Well, I used the University of Pennsylvania smell identification tests that we got from a company called Sensonics. So basically it's four little booklets and they're kind of a scratch and sniff type thing. So you go through with a pencil, scratch them off and you choose which thing you think it smells most like. And basically the more that you get right, the better your sense of smell is. I've got one here actually if you want to have a smell. Um, Some of them are quite potent.
2: (laughs) So this really is just a little scratch and sniff booklet. We have to scratch it with a pencil. I'm being told that this odour should smell like lilac, chilli, coconut or whiskey. So I'll give it a scratch. I actually find that quite hard to tell. It could be lilac or it could be coconut. What does that tell me? How do I use a scratch and sniff to tell me how good my sense of smell is?
7: Basically, you cross off the answer that you think it smells most like. With the tests, they give you a little booklet that tells you the actual answers, what it's actually supposed to smell like. So if you've got it right, then you get a point, and um, the more points you get, the better, really.
2: I assume they aren't all pleasant things like lilac and coconut.
7: And No, sadly, some of them are quite unpleasant. There's onion, there's motor oil, there's paint thinner. Yeah, it wasn't always a pleasant experience completing these halfway up a mountain.
2: <laughs> All in the name of science, and we did find evidence to back up what Andrew Murray was saying, that your sense of smell appears to decrease with altitude. Yep, definitely. So it was obviously a fantastic experience. Did everybody else that you climbed with enjoy it as much as you did?
7: I think in the end everybody probably did enjoy it as much as I did, but there was a very wide variety in the way that people responded to going up that high. To find out how some of the others had felt now that we were further back down after we'd been to base camp, I first of all spoke to Nikki Scott. Oh, feeling lots better. You can definitely tell that there's more oxygen, even though we're still over two and a half thousand metres above sea level. Did you notice any difference in your sleeping pattern? Um, Generally, I sleep quite well, but yeah, definitely was up and down to the bathroom a little bit more. (laughs) But apart from that, I was actually okay with the altitude. Nikki actually got off very lightly, but not everyone was so lucky. I also spoke to Steph Shea. Basically, the whole way up, I had a slight headache, and the higher up we got, the worse the headache got,
1: to the point where, yeah, I couldn't function that well. Going to the bathroom, I needed to pee a lot more than usual. Another thing that I did find was when I was trying to sleep, I found it really hard to breathe. I had a really heavy chest, tight chest. I think that was about it. I got sick, stomach sick, probably, yeah, brought on by altitude as well.
2: So a real variety of reactions, but I'm guessing that everybody was equally thrilled with the experience.
7: Yes, definitely. I think everyone certainly felt that it was worth it and a few people raised a lot of money for charity as well. In fact, this sort of adventure makes people feel charitable and I'd like to say thank you to Sensonics, who gave us the smell identification tests, PH Health who gave me the urine alkalinity testing sticks and also to Proact Medical who lent me the pulse oximeter for my trip.
2: So it was quite a challenge, but all for a very good cause. That was Laura Sowell, as well as fellow Everest climbers Nikki Scott and Steph Shea. They all managed to reach the giddy heights of base camp at 5,300 metres above sea level, even though they experienced some altitude sickness, and Laura's blood oxygen levels dropped down to just 79% of normal.
1: Crikey. We've had a few questions in on the phone. First one from Ken in Torrington. He says, when you climb mountains and you suffer the effects of stress, would it be a good idea to take a sedative? Now, I'm thinking... No. No, I would
2: have thought you, your heart rate will go up for a reason to make sure that you're pumping enough oxygen around. If you take something like a sedative that will reduce your heart rate, then you're not going to have enough oxygen in your tissues.
1: I think it would also maybe mean that you sort of notice less things that you should notice that you might need to take into account and go, oh, I need to seek some I'm, medical I need help. I to descend, yes, yeah. of course. Um, also, we had another question from Tim in Ipswich who says, if a baby is born in the death zone, that's uh, above, is it 7,000 metres? Around there, yes. Um, would it survive and would it then it breathed much slower when it came down to lower altitude and I think you're asking for trouble here really. I
2: think the oxygen demands of giving birth are probably a bit too much to be able to successfully do it when there's just not enough oxygen up in the death zone so I'm not sure and I think that it, it means that the baby in the process would get far less oxygen than it needs. Uh, I don't think this would work very well at all.
1: So maybe wouldn't even make it out alive. Quite possible. What a morbid question Tim isn't it? so just <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>
0: bringing the facts to bear, the Naked Scientists.
2: And now it's time to go to this week's mountainous kitchen science.
8: For this week's kitchen science, I want to do an experiment involving mountains. Unfortunately, real mountains are kind of impractical to do actual experiments on, so I thought I'd build a model. For this model, you need a ideally transparent tray, so a baking tray, which is ideally made out of glass, some lard which I've just had melting using some boiling water. Be careful with boiling water, of course. So I put it in a mug in a bowl of boiling water. And I've filled the tray up with water. Well, that explains the lardy smell in the room. But what do we actually need to do? Well, now we've got the lard nicely molten, I'm going to pour it onto the surface of the water to form
2: a layer a couple of millimetres thick. And fat is less dense than water, so we're expecting that this will float on the surface. So far, this doesn't look... Anything like a mountain. In fact, it doesn't really resemble anything other than a fatty mess.
8: Well, the idea is that mountains are normally made out of continental crust. Now, this is um, rocks like granite and sandstones and things. They tend to be slightly less dense than the mantle, or the top layer of the mantle, the asthenosphere, which is below the crust. And therefore, they'll float on it. The density of the mantle is about 3.3 tonnes per cubic metre. The density of continental crust is about 2.7 tonnes per cubic metre. So I'm using lard because it's got a similar sort of relative density with
2: water as continental crust has with um, mantle. So really this lard on water represents the earth. That is a floating lardy crust.
8: Yeah, you're right. And the earth's crust is floating on this mantle And it's moving around. These plates of crust are moving around and occasionally crash into each other. And these crashes are what create mountains. So, our large
2: crust is now about the right consistency. It seems to have gone fairly hard and it's floating comfortably on the water. You now have to make it into two separate large continental
8: plates. That's right, I failed to make two to start with, so I'll have to chop this one in two using a pair of scissors.
2: Okay, so we're going to end up with a pair of lardy scissors. In order to emulate what happens over geological time as real continental plates crush into each other, we have to push our two sheets of lard together. In reality, the continental
8: plates are moved around because the oceanic plates and the lithosphere, the layer just below them, is denser than the mantle once they get cold, so they sink and pull things behind them. But in our case, I'm going to have to use my fingers and get them all lardy. So I'm now gently holding the lard with as many fingers as possible because it's not very strong. And trying to push the two
2: layers together.
8: One of them appears to be
2: starting to subduct under the other one. Yes, it's sort of folded over and is now going underneath the other plate. It's, it's falling over in little flaps.
8: If you look at the surface now, the two plates were a lot shorter, and where they were crushing together, it's definitely higher up than it was before. There are distinct peaks in it and valleys. It, it actually does look like a small Lardy mountain range. That's right, but the interesting thing is if you now look underwater, so essentially under the mantle in reality. It almost looks like a mountain range again, but upside down. And actually the upside down mountain range is far bigger
2: than the one on the surface. So if our LARD model holds true, then that means that every mountain range we see, there's actually bigger upside down mountains underneath
8: them. That's right. Especially really big mountain ranges like the Himalayas, there's going to be five or six times as much mountain range below the surface than there is rising up above it. Just like icebergs, what we see is only the tip. That's right. You do also get some mountain which is created so fast that the mantle doesn't have time to balance everything out, like Hawaii. But anything which has been around for a few tens of millions of years will certainly be in balance. This is called isostatic equilibrium and they'll have huge roots.
2: Well, there we go. So mountains have roots and not just the ones that you can use to climb up them. We'll be back with another experiment next week.
1: Boom. So, Dave's Lardy Mountains show us that real mountains have deep roots, maybe six times as much rock under the surface than above it. Now, if Dave's Lardy Crust has inspired you to try your own experiment, do let us know. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com with your own Lardy Crust experiments.
2: Oh, Lardy Crust. There's something so very wrong about those two words put together. Uh, now it's time for our question of the weekend. So we've invited Diana O'Carroll back to join us this Studio. Hello.
9: Indeed, and I had to say that I am a happy person because I eat lard. But anyway, uh, this week's question is all about getting in a spin.
0: Uh my name's Charlie, and I'm from Milton Keynes. And I have this question about the spider. How does a spider work out all the positions for the different elements of its web? Is it a brilliant mathematician?
9: So, just how do those ingenious arachnids do it?
4: Hi, I'm Todd Blackledge. I'm an associate professor of biology at the University of Akron. Surprisingly, despite how elegantly symmetric orb webs are, they don't have a map of the shape of the web. Instead, they have genes that control how they move individual legs as they're manipulating silk threads and how to interconnect silk threads. It all starts off with a bridge thread. So a spider can suspend its web in midair by releasing a very lightweight silk thread until it snags on something, such as a a tree on the other side of the trail you're walking on. That bridge thread then forms the core of the web. The spider is able to move out and begin to build an outer framework for the web at the same time as it establishes what are called the radial threads. Those you can think of as the spokes on a wagon wheel. And then once this framework is done, the spider then produces a temporary spiral. So it starts at the center of its web and this temporary spiral acts as a physical guide for the spider to then spin the final gluey capture spiral. And the spider starts at the outside of the web, follows that temporary spiral, and essentially paints itself into a corner in the center of its web. They actually use their legs to measure the distances. So if you watch an orb spider as it's spinning its web, it's reaching out with one set of legs to touch the... Uh, temporary spiral and then using its hind legs to then position the sticky spiral. So the spacing between rows of silk is going to change as a spider matures and the length of its legs grows longer and longer.
9: So spiders have some clever genes telling them how to spin their webs. And instead of a set square and tape measure, they only have to use their legs.
2: And there's been some evidence in other species that counting steps is very important for things like navigation. I know some research got ants and glued pig bristles onto their legs.
9: What if you're a millipede? <laughs> how do you count all those steps?
2: <laughs> very good point. But these ants with the pig bristles massively overshot because they were counting the same number of steps but because their legs were now artificially much larger longer they walked much further so maybe spiders are doing the same sort of thing
9: i see that's very very mean of the scientists but also on the forum we actually had some wit uh neil ep said don't spiders just go online and order them from the world wide web oh Oh dear but anyway from floaty webs to uh floaters now for next week's
0: question hello this is paul from new zealand my question is would it be possible to have a coil of thin wire in one's spectacle frames which would attract floaters in the eye to the extremities of the eye so that they would not float across the eye and be a distraction.
9: Why do we get those little flickery shadows dancing across our vision? Help us to answer this next question of the week by emailing us chris at com or you can write something on our forum and that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum and we'll be back to tackle that one next week.
2: Thank you very much Diana. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. You can find all of her previous questions on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash qotw. And before
1: we finish, we've had a question in from Matthew, who says, why is the background radiation in Germany higher than it is in the UK? Now, we spent some time looking at geological maps of Germany in the UK, and our conclusion is, is that a lot of Germany is made of granite. And granite releases a radioactive gas called radon, but... The UK isn't completely bereft of radioactive rocks. A lot of Cornwall, uh, a lot of Wales, quite a lot of the Pennines and some of the Peak District, and of course Edinburgh, is made of granite and does release radon. And um, there was some research, uh, I think a couple of years ago, that showed that people in Cornwall are actually getting quite a significant dose of radioactivity that does increase the risk of lung cancer in these areas. Um, And in fact, if you smoke and live in places like Cornwall, that are very granite that's actually a much more significant impact on your cancer risk than if you just lived there and didn't smoke. So if you live in Cornwall or anywhere that looks a bit granitey, then don't smoke. But as to whether the background radiation is higher in Germany versus the UK, it really depends where you live. If you live in a very granity bit of Germany, yes, it will be higher. But uh, if you live in a very granity bit of the UK compared to a non granity bit of Germany, then obviously it will be higher higher in the UK. What do you think, Ben?
2: I think that sounds just about right. It's all about local geology. But that's a great question. Thank you very much, Matthew.
1: Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at diseases of the brain. We'll discuss the genes involved in Alzheimer's. We'll find out how a vaccine for multiple sclerosis might work. Many thanks to Jan henning Dirks, Dennis Kent and Laura Sol for joining us this week. And also big thanks to our production team. That's Mira Senthilingam, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. Finally, thanks to all of you at home for listening you can catch up with any shows you've missed or download the naked scientist podcast for free from www.thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts that's all from us for now so have a great week goodbye
0: the naked scientist podcast comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the Wellcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information look us up online at nakedscientist.com